everybody, and welcome to episode 21. We've agreed this is episode 21, even though we've recorded, as Will just pointed out to me, 22 times. Welcome to episode 21 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that talks about food on Sunday nights. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> really... that's inspired. I am a poet. I am a poet. Yes, you, I mean, you, you, you started off with such, such, such energy in, in previous episodes. Now you're just stating it. We are a podcast. We do food. It's it. been a long year. I, yesterday, I finished, I finished my travels for the year. 75 flights, 165,000 miles. So I am very tired. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think we're all ready for 2018 to be over. Yeah. Well, and you know, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. But how are you, Will? I'm great. I've had a, a bit of a week, but it's been, it's the, it's Sunday and uh, we're only a week away from uh, the holiday break. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It's, uh, we're recording on Sunday, the 16th of December. So we are... In single digit countdown to to Christmas, and I'm sure there's I mean, uh, Hanukkah was very very early this year. So if uh, if you celebrate Hanukkah, hope you had a good one. Hope it was uh, eight crazy nights and lots of wonderful food. Um, and there are lots of other celebrations going on at the moment. So I hope you're all having a wonderful wonderful time. And I hope I get this episode edited in time for any of that to be relevant. <laughs> Speaking uh, of, uh, of of Christmas things, uh, I I saw that you uh, you made a new friend in the celebrity world. Did I? Yes. Did I? Uh, yes. A certain very very famous crooner is also a fan of both you and I's favorite Christmas Weird Al song. Oh, did he reply? Well, he liked your comment. Did he? I did not see that. <laughs> uh, do, should, do you want to give some context here? I should pay attention. Uh, Josh Groban, whose music I am indifferent to, but as a human being, he is not only a good dude, but very, very funny. And he yes. is completely okay with his station in life. He's very self-deprecating. Um, he's one of the very few celebrities that I I follow on Twitter. And um, he... But I can't remember what the context was, but oh, he's in England, and he's, yeah, he, he he does a lot of panel shows. He does a lot of often. panel shows, and he, which on which he's very very funny. And he uh, he put a, a tweet out saying, uh, "Manchester, I just did a show, and I um, and I did a Christmas song, and it felt it felt right. It felt like the right thing to do. So, if you have any suggestions for the future future shows, and I was like, well, it has to be the night Santa went crazy by Weird Al. That's like." The best Christmas song ever. Not expecting a reply, but apparently he he liked the tweet, so that's nice. I think he and Weird Al are actually friends. That would that would make a lot of he sense. He did like Al. it. <laughs> yeah, oh, damned. Oh, that's kind of nice. I think it was because I was just trying to pull up like uh, responses, and I just stumbled upon that. First of all, I think I was more shocked that you were talking to Josh Groban. I'm like, is Alex a 45 year old woman going through some sort of heartbreak? What's no, going on? I, you know, I'm, I like I said. I mean, I mean, utterly indifferent to his music. He's clearly a talented guy, but it it's not in my um top 40 if you will <laughs> but i i saw him on nevermind the buzzcocks like 15 years mm. ago with simon amstel who who simon amstel is a ruthless host and we're way off topic here but this is a good topic and josh groban held his own it was very self-deprecating and very funny and i've been a fan of 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 him and he's very funny on twitter as well so uh oh that, that's that's awesome cool all right a little, little extra birthday gift there for you there alex it's not my birthday, but that's fine. 
I mean, you know what I mean. So I'm tired. <laughs> I've had I've had uh, like a lot of dental work, and I've also spent most of this weekend at the vet with the dog. So I'm very tired. Well, yeah. Happy birthday to me uh, in seven <laughs> Christmas and a half birthday. Months. Um, <laughs> uh, no, that's cool. That's cool. So yeah, we did we did go out and we asked you guys a couple of questions, and you were generous with your replies as always. So thank you very much. We. Um, we talked about pizza. We, we even though we recorded pizza quite a few episodes ago, two, three or episodes ago, it's one of those things that has kept coming up in conversation. And I was, we asked you guys if you make pizza at home. And, and Greg Annandale, a good friend of mine and traveler and photographer uh, and coder extraordinaire, said, and he's Greg underscore A at uh, on Twitter. Uh, pizza at home works well with the pizza steel preheated in a two hundred and fifty to three hundred degrees centigrade oven. Then oven off and grill or broiler set to max, and the steel keeps putting out plenty of heat. That's really interesting. What is three hundred C in Fahrenheit? It's got to be like uh, close that's to- that's pretty warm. My oven certainly yeah. doesn't go that high. Um, it is five hundred and seventy-two degrees. Yeah, I mean that's 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 blazing. So yeah, I can imagine that works. And but and but steel the switch is, very- is a really good idea to go from. To go from the oven where you're doing like the convective heat and then the grill or broiler so you're getting the direct heat to, to, mm-hmm. to char everything up on top is really smart. And you, you're having that retain, retained heat with the steel. That's, that's yeah, very cool. Yeah, pumping that out. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to try that. I still – you know, when my wife was asking me what I wanted for Christmas, I, I – when you're put on the spot like that, which is such a dick move, uh, I, w- I was like, I don't know, uh, uh, a cookbook. And then, of course, I was like, wait, no, I want a pizza oven and all these other things that I didn't think of in the moment. And now you've already bought it. So uh, I do want one. I do. I want more than a pizza steel. I want to try one of those pizza ovens that, that Kenji uh, has been doing on Instagram, like we mentioned in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Do you know anyone that has one of those? Um, No. I don't not have in San Francisco. No one has the outdoor space to do that. That's true. That's well, some of them can be indoors or balcony ones. Yeah, no, I was cleaning my grill for the first time since moving to the place, uh, new place and, uh, things that I would never even think about, like just like set, turning the grill on and then going to the other end of the garden to pick something up while it all burns off, not doing that on a balcony. And, uh, I was cleaning something and I had a small fire. Uh, yeah. and I was like, okay, shutting, shutting this down until my new fire extinguisher arrives. Tomorrow. Yeah. That's probably a good shout. You know, can never de- be too careful. Uh, well, okay. All right, folks, if you do have a pizza oven of any kind, I want to hear about it because they're not cheap. I mean, they bring, they seem to be like 200 to 500 us. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear how they are. Uh, your friend and friend of the show, bartender extraordinaire, Keith Brandon, Keith Brandon lump KBL. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he, yes. he sent, I had no idea he was doing this. Uh, how, did you know about his, his sojourn? Tell us about it. He, yeah, yeah. So, um, so rather than having a normal Thanksgiving, he and his dad, um, and and I know your your opinion on cruises, but you know it was a good way for him to see a lot of different places real fast. They went on a Southeast Asian uh, cruise together over th- over the Thanksgiving break. Actually, until 
yesterday. Um, but it started with a couple, three days in Hong Kong where they could just like be and just do all their stuff. And he knows Hong Kong, um, from being there with me and by himself a couple times as well. And so he was able to take his dad to, you know, um, Joy Hing, uh, oh, cool. Tim Ho Wan, um, a bunch of places all around with his dad. And then they went over to, you know, uh, all Southeast Asia, uh, as he mentioned, uh, just did Ho Chi Minh, Bangkok, Singapore, and the attache book was massively helpful, especially for the food. I had every dish for each place and at most of the restaurants you recommended. Big, big thanks. Oh, that's that's really kind, um, Keith. I was glad, I'm glad it was helpful. We've seen a little bit of a spike in, uh, in orders, which is kind of nice considering we've sold out. So we've actually had to print some more. I'm just looking at the book right now of all the places that are, are we at. So we recommended dim sum, sumay, and, and fish bowls. And you really can't go wrong with those. So dim sum all over the place, joy hang, as you mentioned, and then tongue tap for fish bowls, which is uh, in Mong Kok. And he was also saying that like he spent most of his time when he was in Singapore at the, the Hawker Center. Oh, and- yeah, yeah. Yeah, had his chicken and rice, and uh, and then he rounded out the trip uh, in Japan, and um, basically every single photo was something new and something interesting. He was trying to make sure that he didn't eat what he ate the entire time last time, which was, funnily enough, the topic of the show. So he, it was a bit more of a running in the gamut of, of Japanese winter food. So um, if, if you if you get a chance, um, I'll I'll see if I can retweet some of his photos from Instagram yes, or cross cross-platform stuff but uh yeah he was he was very very um grateful and, and and very helped by the attache guide oh that's that's awesome and then really really so, great so not n- knock out another region yeah we're, we're we're figuring out how that's gonna work so we also asked as we, we you know will and i talk about what we ate uh since we last recorded and what we've enjoyed the most. But as we're closing out the year, we wanted to ask you guys what you have uh, discovered or tried at home and got some amazing, amazing replies. I missed this one from Ben Pimp My Dibber at Pimp My Dibber. It's absolutely glorious. Did you see this? This was probably the greatest series of tweets I've ever experienced uh, while we've been doing this podcast. Um, I've talked in the in the past about my love for for roasted pork with uh, with fantastic crackling on it. And uh, Pimp My Dibber did a uh, rolled belly. Uh, massive is probably what I don't know uh, two feet long. Almost it's freaking it like huge uh, with a fantastic. Uh, um, stuffing and a wonderfully crisp and crunchy looking crackling skin on, on it. Um, he did say in a, in a, in a, in a note to somebody else on, on the thread that he went with belly over loin because it's, uh, harder to mess up. So the little insider tip there. Um, I definitely think that I would have probably made the mistake of going with the loin and overcooking it, but, yeah. uh, the, the the information is absolutely insane. So he cooked it one hour at 275 degrees and then 10 hours at 74. Remember that overnight. centigrade. I didn't even know thing. Yeah. I didn't even know that like things could go that low. And then he uh, let it cool down, slice it and then blast uh, slices to serve, uh, which is almost like you're running a restaurant. It's crazy. And then he did send a photo of the cross section and they look fantastic, but he did say may have been a bit too much stuffing. And and I would say it's about two thirds stuffing, but it looks looks really fantastic. So I guess what you do is you've got the, the full on, uh, you know, the full 
pork belly and then he's he's spread stuffing all over it and then rolled it up and and with a very intricate um, butcher's twine job we'll retweet these if we haven't already because it's it's fantastic work ben ben is a committed um foodie and he's always trying experiments with with various things but this i think shows that that uh he's he's very good at what he does so that's stunning yeah, it is. And, and and Ben, I made the mistake of last year or the year before with I didn't score the the uh, skin enough prior to it, and so it becomes like it doesn't cook as quickly as the pork. And like sometimes you have the pork done, but the the crackling isn't quite there there yet. But it looks like you've striated the the skin to be able to make it sort of do that wonderful accordion style. Constantina effect, which I think also helps um, with the ability to crisp faster uh, by increasing the surface area. So it looks great. I may be cooking some pork later before the end of the year. So I may be hitting you up for some tips. Yeah, because that looks outstanding. And it looks really impressive not as well. So I think that's that that's uh, something I'm going to be stealing as well. But a few – Ben actually came back with another tip that he gave us on something he discovered out uh, in New York when he was over there. While he was there, he went on one of Scott's pizza tours, which he uh, had a great time on. We mentioned that in the last episode. And that he went to this place in New York called The Marshall on 10th and 45th. Beef short ribs were soft and spoony. Lovely spot. I've never been there. Maybe, well, you're going to New York in a couple of days. Maybe uh, if you have some time, you should stroll by it. Yeah, I'm still looking for res- for some recommendations. Um, I have not booked the first night dinner that we were there. Also, any good lunch spots. Um, we are on the lower west side or is it it's greenwich village um i don't necessarily know too much about the the area so if you have any suggestions for that area uh i am all ears we have not made any reservations which is probably suicidal but no no i think you're fine that's the great thing about new york is if you can't get into one place then you just go next door and it'll be equally as good uh taylor moore timor 4000 who is a dedicated listener of this podcast and the others as well uh this is fascinating to me had my first Thanksgiving outside of the States this year and had one of the best meals at Anchor and Hope Cut, which which is a pub in in Southwark, which I've actually been to. And he said that they did a full American Thanksgiving. And he said that it was it was really good. Uh really good service, farm raised turkey, all the fixings. I have to say, uh and I'm I'm totally fine with this. Thanksgiving is becoming a little bit more of a thing in the UK. I th- which I think is a lovely idea. It's a lovely tradition to bring um, because it's purely about food and it's about mm-hmm. not consumerism. So this this delights me, but actually doesn't surprise me that much. I think uh, that's good to know. Yeah, and I replied back to him um, saying that I remember Kate, my wife, when we were dating in college, um, Her she came out to – Oxford when I was uh, studying and during the Thanksgiving break and I didn't even think about this and we went for Chinese food uh, on Thanksgiving and she just sat there and and took it like a champ and did not complain until about five years later when she was saying that was the weirdest experience of her life. So, you know, chow mein on on Thanksgiving is is a new one and I probably uh, almost blew it right there. But... (laughs) But it, it, it's funny because I don't like outside of the U.S. You just don't even think about it. But it's interesting that it has become a little bit more, more popular 
uh, or more widely accepted. Uh, Alex, you're a trailblazer by having, uh, how many years have you been doing your Thanksgiving for Wayward Souls? Uh, 10. 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're a trailblazer when it comes to introducing the Americans to the fine arts of, uh, brine turkeys and, uh, weird sweet potato things we weren't actually going to do it this year we we're going to have a quiet one and then i got panicked emails from everybody that usually comes and um so we did and i enjoyed it i loved every second of it so we'll keep doing it but uh that's uh, it's good to know that, that, that that's available um dustin pearlberg at dustin pearlberg on twitter Emmer and rye in austin texas we go there annually when on vacation and the food is just remarkable that is good to know Dustin, because I am going to Austin in February for the very first time for just a few hours. So I will definitely check that out as well as lots of barbecue and barbecue. Lots of barbecue yeah. <clears throat> so Dustin goes to Austin quite a lot because uh, he's, a, he's a friend and a colleague and uh, ah. uh, does a lot of, and I did not tell him to listen to the podcast and he found it and like, uh, who am I kidding? I tell everybody that I do a podcast, but I didn't instruct him to tell us, like to, to go off there and listen to it and like tweet at us. But he is a bit of a foodie as well and uh, has a green, uh, he's a, is a big smoker guy, um, has his own smoker at home as well. So he knows good, good barbecued meats. But I looked up this place, Emmer and Rye, and it's the weirdest cross-section of food. Really look, nice-looking restaurant, but it's Texas Italian dim sum. What? So take that what you will. Texas? Yeah. So it's, say that again. Texas? Texas Italian dim sum. Dim sum. So it's, it's, it's in Texas with Texas ingredients or like southern ingredients that also does Italian food, really good noodles. And dim sum. Oh my god! I'm just looking at the uh, the menu here. Holy crap! Yeah. Blue crab, persimmon, habanero, and sunchoke dim sum. Yeah, they, this exactly that perfectly summarizes that statement. <laughs> wow! Oaxacan yellow corn Johnny cakes, Deer Creek cheddar, short rib, and creme fresh. <gasps> I am going here. Jiminy cricket. <laughs> We'll see if we can get some sort of referral bonus. Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right, Dustin. Nice work. Good find. Yeah. That's... And then lastly, uh, Keith was mentioning that uh, while on his trip, he was uh, worried about our lack of uh, potential e uh, sorry X words for when we finally get to the tail end of the alphabet. And he said, uh, you guys should kind of cheat and do Bonsu, spelled X-E-O, for our X episode, which yeah. is, and I had to look this up, it's like um, a hot pancake in Vietnam. In Vietnam. It's in the um, attaché book. Is it? Yes. Oh, that's the name like literally it. means sizzling cake. Oh, there you go. And uh, it, uh, have you ever had it? Yes. So it's this rice flour, coconut milk, um, and turmeric batter, which then they add a bunch of stuff. And they, a lot of the times they put pork belly as the main filling. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, really, really, really freaking good. But I have not had it in Vietnam where he clearly did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's uh, he got some great photos of of where he got it. It was your typical, you know, on the side of the street with the small plastic uh, chairs, and it looks fantastic and fresh. And just the Vietnamese, like the the sides and the condiments and like the the freshness of the herbs, is what makes it so good. It's the I, I've said this a million times before. Like if you gave me a choice between Vietnamese and Thai food, I'm always going to choose Vietnamese. Um, and I just really love how the French influences yes. in, in Vietnam have been so embraced. Um, without being heavy-handed yeah no no totally i think um 
I'm, Vietnam is is very high on the list for our, for an attaché episode, so I will eat myself to oblivion there. But um, thank you guys. I asked that. I, I said that to Keith. I said like you're going to come back to the U.S. like a hundred pounds heavier, and he goes, "I would have, but it's so unbelievably humid. Everything sweat is just it all sweating out, out of yeah, my Yeah, no, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Uh, even this time of year, geez, wow. Well, thank you guys for doing that. Um, keep them coming because I'm sure we'll record another episode um, either late this year or early next year where we talk about the year a little bit more generally. So if you uh, had any more uh, culinary wow moments throughout the year that you had uh, at a restaurant or you made yourself, do do let us know. But um, we'll and we'll save that. We'll save our best thing for the year for next episode. But what's what's been the best thing that you ate uh, since we last recorded a few weeks ago? So I was thinking about this. There's something I always cook and I've just got the technique better and better and better. And it all came down to Gordon Ramsay, who love him or hate him. He does know his stuff. Um, and he does some really good, um, just like short instructional videos um, that I find really easy to follow. So I'm a massive duck person. And a lot of people like feel intimidated by duck or don't know what to do with it or only think of confit. And like they would always, it's one of those things that people always order in a restaurant, but would never make it home. I do duck breasts probably once or twice a month. Um, and real quick, the way that the, the, the fail safe technique that I use is duck breast scored, you're scoring the skin, not the meat. So you can render it out cold pan. I may have already mentioned this in an episode. And if I have, I, I apologize. I just no, it's worth re-mentioning. I think it's a, it's a- and I love it. And so basically, you put cold pan, uh, skin side down, turn the heat onto medium high, let it cook for about five minutes or so, just until the fat starts rendering out, and you get a little bit of golden uh, tinges on the, on the skin. Flip, put onto the uh, skin side, the, the fat, the mat, the meat side for about like three or four minutes, five minutes maybe, then into a 350 degree Fahrenheit oven on the skin side for about 15 minutes and then you're done. That's it. Mm. Like temp, use your, use your thermopen to temp it and it should be about the same as how you like your steak. Um, you know, I sometimes I do finish it on the stovetop just if I want to get it a little bit more crispy and then I save the, the, duck, the duck fat for uh, the red duck fat for if I'm making potatoes or if I'm making something else for another time, just, you know, I, I, I sieve it and make sure there's no bits in it and then reuse it when I'm making potato, roast potatoes or whatever I may be doing. Yeah. Leave it on the, on the counter and then cut on the bias and a small pan sauce. And that's what I did the other day. And it's just my favorite quick and easy weekday dinner when it used to be short ribs. But now that I'm still figuring out the grill situation, the duck has sort of replaced it. And duck is not a scary thing. It's super easy. If you find a good purveyor, they're not that expensive. Give it a shot. Yeah, we love duck in, in our house. In fact, I just picked up a whole duck today. That was on sale, and that's a that's a fun thing to do. It's it's not as easy as a roast chicken, but it's still pretty bloody easy to do. So I'm I'm, looking- I'm doing a recipe in a couple of weeks actually, which is a um, crispy whole duck. Um, when you use the the water to so like you know in in a bath to sort of like not necessarily separate the skin, but get, get the steam so it really sort of makes the renders out the fat and then allows you to crisp that skin up as you cook and roast it throughout the rest of the uh, nice. process. Nice. Well, that that sounds amazing. I'm going to steal steal that recipe. I love duck. <laughs> uh, so, what's the best thing that you've eaten recently? So, I I well, 
I was in Hamburg very briefly, my first trip actually. And I asked our brother who lived there for a few years what I should try. And the first thing he said was, uh, was obviously a, a brat verse because it was, it's, well, it's Christmas time. So I, I sprinted over to the Christmas market right in front of the rat house, the big town hall there in Hamburg, which is a lovely building. And I, I, ha- I had one and it was really delicious and wonderful. And I had a couple of glasses of the wonderful glue wine, which I love that <laughs> stuff so much. I like, I like mulled wine, but there's something about glue wine. And actually, I don't know the difference for, to be completely honest with you, but they are, they are the masters of it, obviously. And I had that, but the best thing I had was Handbrot, which I have is, no idea what that is. Handbrot is a little bit like a uh, Flammkuchen. You ever had okay. that? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, they, it's like a, it's like a, it's a stuffed bread essentially that they made, but they do these sort of, um, crazy ones that, uh, that are all over the place. And mine was, um, ham and, um, Comte cheese and, uh, and a few others, it, but it is, yeah, it's essentially, it's, it's a flamkuchen and it was, it was, they, they, they cook it in, in a, on a long, um, wooden, like you know the things that you use to get a pizza out of a pizza oven like it's got a long stick with a paddle at the end and emma and emma peel that cool yeah. peels and this was like it's a, like a long paddle like a like a mm-hmm. you know flamkuchen that's a paddling that that type of paddle um yeah and that was just <laughs> i said so i just I, got the, just got the simpsons go. reference <laughs> like a good deep cut right there I sent our, our brother Andrew a message saying the Germans really are the champions of hate yourself food because not only is it like ham and cheese and rich teas, but there's also a massive dollop of creme fraiche on the top of it and, mm-hmm. um, and chives and all of that. So, you know, it, you, you feel your heart stopping, but it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> So yeah, that was the best thing I, I. I like German food. I think pe- German people. I mean, people get a like a, I don't know oversimplification of what German food can be, or they go to like the extremes and the super sour stuff. Um, but in general, it's good. Yeah, it's it's hearty and it's good. Pork knuckle. I'm not so. Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying that they're the best at summer food. I could, like Germans tell me like, what do you eat when you don't want to eat half a half a pig's foot or you know. 17 sausages with beer like that's not summer food but i I love their winter food and their cold weather stuff it's it's second to none yeah agreed it's very comforting and hearty food so i was i was delighted to be there to experience a german christmas market at christmas time um before we move on to our subject du jour which is a doozy and a big one what are you drinking for company this fine sunday um i'm going to tell you what i drank on Thursday, as well as what I'm drinking now. So on Thursday, we were at a bar. We were having our company uh, office holiday party, and we were on one of those trolleys that basically is the cable car on wheels. Yes, we were those people. Um, and one of the places we stopped was a place called Hammer Time on Polk in San Francisco, which is run by Black Hammer Brewing. And so they have dozens of different, you know, really great beers. But there was one that we were looking at, and it was like, that can't be good. That can't, let's, that can't be good. Let's try it. And it was a lobster beer. Ugh. It was a beer. It was a beer. It was like a it was like a saison um, that was brewed with lobster shells. And we were like, 
We're like, Why? is it going to be pink? Is it going to be red? What, like, what's going on here? We get a small, like, taster thing of it, and the smell comes off, and it smells a bit like salty seawater. And we tasted it, and it just tastes kind of sweet, kind of like beer, with a slight aftertaste of shellfish. I guess it would be like the taste that you get at the bottom of like a mousse frite or uh, in the wine sauce or, um, you know, if you're eating oysters with a nice, you know, glass of whatever. It's that brininess that you get at the end of it. It wasn't not nice, but I wouldn't drink a pint of it. So I wanted to throw that out there just because it was a little odd. That is but what odd. I'm drinking. I'm drinking right now is we found another brewery right relatively close to where we are now. And it's called Armistice. And I'm not sure if you can see my, uh, my, my, uh, uh, oh, that's a cool screen, can. but it's a very cool can. And they have this thing called a crowler, which is rather than a growler, they give you crowlers. So they're two pint sized um, cans that you can just ask them to fill up with whatever favorite beer you want. Um, and their slogan is ales and allies, which I like. Um, but I'm drinking their iso brown. So it's a brown style maple brown ale. It doesn't have a massively maple flavor to it. It's a bit more like a uh nuki brown style which obviously we've talked about nice. like I, it is a brown beer i like it's 6.1 percent, so it is relatively high and i'll go and i'm drinking two pints of it so let's see how this goes crikey bananas well there you go it's, there's not a bit yes what are you drinking well i um i was in sapporo as you guys know and i've been looking for this stuff everywhere my friend shin in tokyo introduced us to this on our very first trip out there uh the nika Whiskey, Nika, Nika. Mm -hmm. Um, And this particular one, which I've been struggling to find, is the coffee grain whiskey. It's got nothing to do with the drink coffee. It's C-O-F-F-E-Y, which is a type of still, a a, a Mm -hmm. dual cylinder still. And it's called coffee because it's named after the man who invented it. It's very Scottish, um, which is interesting because... Uh, Nika or Nika is from Hokkaido, which is where Sapporo is. But the founder of that, of that, of that distillery, uh, Takatsuru, he went to Scotland in, uh, the turn of the last century and around 1918 to study not just whiskey, but organic chemistry at the University of Glasgow and malt whiskey production in near the Mall of Kintyre. Yeah. So I read, I read a, a, a really in depth, profile of this guy and like he did it with like just off the on a whim basically and he was really young he was like 19 years old no no that was the dude that founded um Sapporo brewery oh although although that said um when this when uh Takatsura went to uh he was only 26 so oh i might be complaining this but i definitely heard about this because the bbc did a an expose on him it sounds more in depth than it was, but um, that he did come back. And I think I may have cut you off there, but he did come back with more than just a, uh, than a whiskey recipe. Yeah. He came back with a, with a Scottish wife, but here's the thing. He came from a family that had owned a sake brewery since 1733. Beverages were in his blood, literally and figuratively. And so, but he was also, you know, he was a chemistry student and a chemistry um, um well, he was chemist by profession as well. And then when he went back, he uh, helped to found the first distillery for what is now Suntory. So it's 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 a rather nice uh, rather nice story. But I I lo- I've been looking for this whiskey ever since, and I have it, the Nika Coffee Grain Whiskey or Nika, and it's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. 
Is it not that hard? Is it not that easy to find in England? Because I feel like that bottle I see quite a lot over here. It's well, their labeling is. Very, I'm just pouring it right now. Um, their labeling is consistent across most of their their products, but this particular varietal, if you will, is is a little harder to find. Weirdly, couldn't find it in Japan uh, at all. Parrot, it's Charles de Gaulle Airport has a fantastic whiskey shop where they have an entire Japanese section where I was able to find some pretty crazy stuff, in, in, including this. So I was very happy. So anyway, that's that's what's keeping me warm on this disgusting December night. And quite nicely leads into the topic du jour. It, oh, that's a good burn. Yes, it does. It does. Um, talking about Japanese stuff, we are doing R for ramen. And I'm going to add the disclaimer right now that we are going to do our best to cover as much of this topic as we can. But it is monstrous. It is nuanced. It is full of opinion. Uh, so I'm very sure there will be things that we miss out, but we will do our best to celebrate one of my all-time favorite dishes anywhere on the planet. Wonderful, wonderful ramen. I, I literally rolled out of bed this morning, grabbed a T-shirt, and got ready for recording. Not that I didn't. I woke up well before midday, just, <laughs> just saying that. Um, it was just like making sure the dog's okay and stuff like that. But uh, I just grabbed the t-shirt and I just realized when I logged on with Alex that I'm wearing uh, the Japanese national team soccer jersey just out of nowhere. Nice. Kind of oh, it was perfect. meant to be. It was meant to be. So, yes, ramen is, is a wonderful thing. And it's uh, one of the things that I, I crave most when I'm nowhere near Japan because that's just how life works. You want the things that they uh, – that they have, but uh, I feel like uh, we should kick it off with this wonderful little riddle that you have. I, I, I hope it. I, I wrote it last night, a few whiskeys in, so hopefully it still makes sense. It's like when you're a stand-up comedian trying to remember jokes uh, in the middle of the night. But what do China, Japan, prison, and college all have in common? <sighs> I have absolutely no idea. Ramen is almost a currency. In all of those environments, they are true. a life force. Um, we'll get into the China connection to Japan makes a lot of sense. Prison, there was even an article about how ramen has become a currency within prisons because they are so shell stable. And we'll get onto that in a second. And every single college dorm room in this country, in the US, I could walk into and find instant ramen. And so it is uh, runs the gamut from, you know, the highest of society down to the lowest of the low and those down on that luck. It is so interesting and it has such a checkered, borrowed, ever-evolving history, present and future that uh, I, to your point, I don't think we're going to be able to do much but open a conversation between us and those who are listening. Please don't hit us. <laughs> Yeah, kind of no, thing. you're right. It, it it is a massive topic because you know there's when you say ramen to somebody, their brain pictures a, a dish, and like you say, it could be it could be the soup ramen uh, uh, that one associates with Japan, and it could be a particular type of ramen like miso ramen in in Hokkaido, or it could be the instant ramen which we all know and love, and all of the million varieties of that. So it's it's a very diverse thing. But what is it? Well, let's just be clear, ramen. The word 
is referring just to the noodles. And that clears things up right then and there. Because if you say ramen, nine people, nine times out of 10 people are going to think of the big steaming bowl of something with noodles in it. It's not the bowl itself. It is the noodles. And so it's technically ramen soup is what most people think of when they are getting ramen. But it is a Chinese invention. It comes from the Chinese word lamen, which is a Chinese-style wheat noodle, which was then exported to Japan in roughly the late 19th century, early 20th. The word, the, the, the language shift, as it were, from lamen to ramen comes from the fact that the, the L sound in Japanese doesn't really exist, and Ls are often replaced with Rs. Um, so they're saying the same word just in their own accent, um, which I found. Which is kind interesting, of- isn't it? Because you would th- you would think that it's an ancient uh, it's an ancient dish, but it's really not. I mean, that's 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 not very old at all. Of course, noodles are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, and again, were invented in China. But the ramen, as as we would recognize it today, even if it's in its loosest definition, is only uh, just over a hundred years old. Yeah, and they're not sure. I've read a couple different pieces on this, and some people thought it was because of blue-collar Chinese uh, immigrants coming over to Japan at roughly this turn-of-the-century period that they brought the idea, mixed it with what was going on in China at the time. I've seen another one that a nobleman bought the recipe, but then there was no backing that one up, uh, and then like disseminated it through Japan, which seems way too altruistic for it to be actually believable. Um, I think it's just one of those things that it makes sense. Like, noodles in soup existed in China for a very long time, but the concepts that we'll get into and the variations of the regional setup of what a ramen soup is, but for the sake of argument, I'm just going to call it ramen from now on. You can see the influence only over the last 110, 120 years in Japan. That's important because, as we all know, there's been this absolutely massive explosion uh, of ramen in the Western world only in the last like 15 years. But um, the the Japan thing, the Japan China thing goes even deeper. For the first 20, 30, 40 years of its existence, it was often known as shinasoba, which means Chinese, Chinese noodles. noodles. Yeah. Yeah. So that just shows it's not soba noodles. Um, but it, it was so accepted as being Chinese that they were even calling it that. And so I, I, it's funny, you'll hear a lot of people being like, um, when they see an, a, a person in the US or or wherever riffing on ramen, be like, oh, well, that's not authentic ramen. I'm like, well, ramen isn't authentic ramen. There's no yeah. such thing as authentic ramen. Yeah. And, and, and so I know I might get some like hate on the internet for that, but there is no such thing. But do you know what the most important turning point for ramen as we know it today was? What turned it from this sort of back, alley you know gray market blue collar dish to what it is today it's not insignificant it was world war ii you know exactly i was just like how far back are we going here yeah the post-war the post-war reclamation reclamation rebuilding period in the 1950s and 60s in the u.s is is as you said a turning point yeah because when after the war, the U.S. occupied Japan for uh, nearly 10 years, and there was a really bad, well, there was a food, massive food shortage, but also a crappy rice harvest. So the U.S. T- sent in tons and tons and tons and tons of cheap wheat flour. Uh, so two things happened. Bread consumption went through the roof, but also wheat found its way into making ramen. 
uh, noodles as opposed to um, the buckwheat noodles that they used before. And so it was, uh, it became a huge, a huge thing. And also actually it was an opportunity for the more entrepreneurial post-war uh, inhabitants of Japan to, to make some money. But quickly it became a black market thing and, and fell under the control of the Yakuza. I read an article that said that at one point, 90% of ramen stalls in post-war Japan were run by the mafia, Japanese mafia, which, uh, it makes which, a lot of yeah. sense because, uh, crash course in uh, Money Laundering 101 from Will here. Um, if you ever find yourself in a criminal syndicate where you have a lot of money coming in that you can't spend because the tax man's on your butt, you need a lot of cash-heavy, quick turnover companies or that you have the control over. So something like a ramen stall is ideal. It's often why you hear in Money Laundering. Um, laundromat. The famous one, obviously. Well, laundromats, nail salons, and obviously the famous one from Breaking Bad is a car wash. Um, something that people are going to be using cash for and has a lot of different non-repeating customers allows you to get cash into the system and wash your money with the legitimate money and then pull it out. And like the Yakuza were famous for this, still are uh, to lesser extents. But um, you know, it's it, it makes a lot of sense. I didn't know the connection with the Romans Law. It just makes sense to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a pretty neat. Um little subtopic of uh, of Roman history about how wheat noodles were not really a thing and now they are and here we go so um i th- i thought that was kind of neat but now you know they they are a staple of japanese urban and suburban life and even rural life but certainly urban life they're a great um fast food quote unquote fast food they're extremely popular you can find the regional varieties all over the all over Japan, and as you said, in the last fifteen years, it has become the a global superstar. But uh, we haven't we've talked about where it's come from and what the word means, and this wonderful kind of oh. And if you want a little compressed history of that relationship between China, China and Japan, watch Bill Wurtz's wonderful video "History of Japan" on YouTube. It is very very funny and very very good. So, um, but what is it? <laughs> I love this. We do we, we we do this every episode where we like go in and like like oh yeah we gotta actually talk about talk what about this what it actually is, is at 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 a very basic level. It's noodles in some sort of broth or soup with some sort of toppings. And I I'm not being like flippant about this. Like even the dictionary definition is like it's it's ramen noodles in a sometimes broth in sometimes toppings with sometimes meat. I'm like, this is not helpful. No. So there's there's about four major variations that uh, most ramen fit into as the sort of, as Alex mentioned, offline, the four horsemen of the ramen apocalypse, um, which I'll let you jump into. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the, the the broth is the most important bit. Ordinarily, it's it's well, I think it is actually. I think you could start a fight by saying that some people would say the noodles are the most important bit, but the the soup is that a stock that will said that's almost always chicken or pork, um, but it can be in some cases it could be a seafood one uh, as well. But there are the the these four main and not not exclusive. So don't don't send us angry tweets. Ramen can be developed into these four main flavors, which is shoyu, which is soy sauce, soy sauce-based broth, shio, which is a salt-based broth, uh, miso, which is uh, very much a part of um, the Hokkaido style, 
and curry, which is also a Hokkaido style as well, which is a little less prevalent, but no less delicious. Because, you know, incredibly, ramen in Hokkaido was first created in only in 1965. So I did read that miso is the new kid on the block. I mean, maybe curry is a little bit more, but like of the, we know curry from India, but miso, we all, we associate with this, this area of the world. So the miso broth based one only being 60 years old is kind of odd. Yeah, it, it, it is odd. And I think, um, it's delicious. We had it when, uh, if you have, if you've seen the Sapporo episode, we, we had it in the street that it was invented in. And it's, it's very kind of rich and thicker, certainly nuttier. It's perfect because that's, it's a very cold part of Japan, especially this time of year. So it's, it's perfect for that, that type of thing. So you've got those four different broths. And again, there are, to- there are many, many different, um, versions. There's the, there's tonkatsu, which is, uh, around the Fukuoka area. And that's uh, pork broth, pork bone broth. And that's like a cloudy color. It's like a, mm-hmm. um, a creamy almost. And that's – so that's that's a different flavor. And again, as you move around Japan, every area has their own one. No one ever says, oh, well, you know, it's not like, it's not like chili or pizza where people are like, ours is better. It's like – they do this type and it's great. So if I want miso ramen, I go to Hokkaido. If I want um, tonkatsu ramen, I go to Fukuoka or somewhere like that in uh, in uh, Kyushu. So you know you got you've got all of those, and then the noodles, as you mentioned. So those coming together are like the the, the core elements, and then the toppings come in, and the toppings run the gamut. But probably the most famous are is chashu, which is uh, sliced or uh it's always sliced barbecued or braised pork which is personally my favorite and then scallions and then you have uh, a half or 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 full boiled egg and that boiled egg is almost par- almost always parboiled getting that right is bloody difficult <laughs> and it's not a it's not a i always think that when i get ramen that the egg is like so quintessentially part of the like it's like the the bun the bread and sorry the bread the bun and, and the meat of the burger like it's something you can't vary away from. But in researching that, it only exists in like three or four of the major variations. Um, it doesn't exist in you know as much in your Sapporo style or your uh, was this one Hakata style, but does exist in in the other ones, which I thought was. Kind of interesting because I love the egg. For me, it has to be soft boiled. I love that yellow, you know, rich egg yolk filling the rest of my bowl. Yeah, me, 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 me too. I, I think um, it's, uh, it's a, it's it's absolutely wonderful thing. And actually, we, you know, we should we should talk about that because you mentioned Hakata, which is a a variety, a regional variety, which is which uses that tonkatsu broth. But when you when you combine the ingredients in a certain way, then you have Hakata ramen, which is a certain type of noodle, that pork bone tonkatsu broth, and then garlic and sesame seeds. Uh, they usually add um, these like mustard greens, spicy and, and pickle. Yeah, which is really interesting because that's something I've not had in any like exported uh, ramen that I've had in the U.S. Like I think that would be amazing. Like the the, the mustard greens give such a a depth of flavor that is almost um, meaty. Uh, and actually, it's funny because it's become one of the most popular versions in Japan. 
And so a lot of the big chains, which are also really good, actually, you can, you, you can get that uh, no matter where you are in Japan, uh, as well, which is kind of good. But if we go through some of the other regional ones, um, Sapporo, we've talked about with the miso ramen, uh, the, the, the Kitakata ramen, which is from Honshu, which is the main island where Tokyo is. And that's got these like thicker flat noodles. Uh, and that's a pork broth, uh, and that's that's really good. And then, so Tokyo ramen uh, within that that uh, Kitakata ramen, you've got these thinner noodles, and then that's that's a that's a soy flavored, shoyu flavored chicken broth. And they actually use dashi as well in that in that version as well, which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. Um, and then again, it runs the gamut all over the place, and they're they're all just as wonderful as each other. And as you move around Japan, you'll you'll experience them all. But have you ever had skimen ramen? Maybe I, I I've, I've definitely heard of it. Skimen is when you is called it, the translation is dipping ramen. Okay, or it's what not the literal there? translation, but it's where you get a you get a, a side of noodles that are usually cold, almost always cold actually, and then a side of soup. Uh, which is basically your ramen soup without the noodles, and then you 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 take the noodles with your chopsticks and you dunk them in the soup, and then you and then they become warm, and then you oh, uh, you eat you the noodles. Them. And again, a new invention, early '60s, and uh, but much 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 harder to find outside of Japan. Yeah, I I think that I've only ever seen it on the on the menu in two places that I've been to, and and maybe I'm just too much of a wuss right now to want cold noodles. I know it goes into a hot broth, but like <laughs> I might be going to try that sometime soon if I can find a place. Yeah, it, I it we were introduced to it by uh, this guy um, Brian McDuxton, who is a an American guy living in Tokyo. He does these ramen tours. He r- literally wrote the book on Japanese ramen, both in English and in Japanese. And he's in our Tokyo episode. Uh, I'd never heard of it. He he felt it very important that we experience it because it's as I said, something you you can't really find outside of Japan. But uh, another very interesting uh, variant, if you will. And so I know, dear listener, you feel like every time you turn the corner, you're hearing about a new ramen place opening up in your neighborhood. Um, and as we've talked about, there are so many different variations and so many different options you go, go from. And if you're not that confident or that adventurous when it comes to this, you're probably like, I'm so overwhelmed. But given the fact that, Alex, you just got back from, from Japan and, and Keith, we should have probably had you on because you literally flew back yesterday. Um how does one navigate this and and feel confident going into a ramen shop? It, it, yeah, I mean that's it's it's a good question. I, mean, I think if we're if we're talking specifically about Japan or very very traditional ramen joints outside of Japan, the way it usually works is there's a there's a bar, uh, you know, like you would imagine a normal bar, but behind the bar they're making ramen and not wonderful alcohol, as you know as Keith would be doing, as well as maybe some tables. But invariably, when you go into a ramen joint and you don't sit down and order, you don't even order at the bar. Instead, there is a vending machine. And the vending machine has rows and rows of buttons, maybe, I don't know, 24. And each one is a type of ramen or a side. Um, They're divided up. And you put your money in. And you press the button of the particular type of ramen that you would like, and maybe any um, 
I need, you know, addition, like an extra egg or an extra slice of pork belly or whatever you like to add to it. Maybe it doesn't really matter. And then uh, when you're done, you press another button and it prints out this ticket and gives you your change. You give the ticket to the attendant who's standing right there and then you they show you to a seat and then they bring you your food. All sounds reasonably straightforward. It makes the whole process much faster. But almost always they are in Japanese. So if you don't read Japanese, you're kind of boned. However, there is this wonderful tip that, again, Brian McDuxton, Japan Ramen Adventures, this is blog and his company, uh, taught us. If in doubt, pick top left, because that is always the house specialty, and you can't go wrong with that. So top left button, press it, you'll get what they're good at, and it will almost always be very, very good. So that that is the, uh, if you write anything down from this episode, make sure it's that. <laughs> Yeah, if you have um, dietary restrictions or want to make uh, substitutions, learn Japanese. Yeah, yeah, or or go on one of Brian's tours, uh, or have a Japanese friend. But yeah, that 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 uh, has never ever um, led me astray because you're always going to get what they're good at, what they're most proud of, their house specialty is, and I don't think I've ever had a bad bowl of ramen in my life in Japan. So it's it's. It's you're going to be fine. The thing that I sort of want to pivot to as we have sort of dived into what it is and the variations and uh, so on and so forth and how to get your best chances at a great ramen. There's two areas that are sticking in my mind. The first being why is it popular all of a sudden internationally and why over the last 15 years does it seem like everything is popping off in the ramen world? And the other one is, why do nine times out of ten, if I would say ramen, maybe prior to this 50, last fifteen years, or some areas that don't have a bit of a revolution, is everyone thinking about cup of noodle or the packets that you see in prison shows or you know in college? And they're kind of linked, actually. They're in trend. They're, they're they cannot be separated. So I'm going to say a word to you, and I know you know where this comes from, Mama Fuku. David Chang. David Chang. Nine times out of ten, people are going to say David Chang, unless you're Japanese or really into your ramen. So Mama Fuku is David Chang, legendary Korean-American chef who does the TV show Ugly Delicious and many other things. Uh, his first breakout restaurant was Mama Fuku Noodle Bar in New York. And I'm not joking when the, the general population and, and the general – Media attributes David Chang for why ramen exists in America. It may have been traditional ramen, it may, not in traditional, Spanish. yeah, traditional ramen. The ramen explosion where you have people lining up um, out the door for you know four hours just to get into places, which my wife wants me to get into. I have a problem with people lining up for that long in the U.S. because I don't want to be surrounded by those kind of people. But in other, any other country, in any other country, I would do it because it's like that's how you get the meal. But I'm not lining up for four hours in the tenderloin to go to a ramen place just because it's the place to go. That's just not me. Sorry. Anyway, Mamafuku. So he has done such a good, amazing job of, of of popularizing it that people got into it and they rode that wave to where we are right now. And I'm not trying to say that it wasn't always popular. It has always been popular over the last 60, 70 years in Japan. It just wasn't um, elevated to a height that he was able to open the ideas to. But 
The question you may be asking yourself, dear listener, is is the name Mamafuku. It's Japanese, David Chang, Korean. Where did it come from? Where did that word come from? Alex, do you know? I do, because we went to Osaka and I researched the hell out of this. Unfortunately, it didn't make the episode, but instant noodles that are, again, ubiquitous in, well, many homes all over the world, but especially in the U.S. and in many institutions around the world as well, were invented by a chap called Momofuku Ando, uh, who, that's not actually his real name. Uh, no, he, he has was, like a non, it's like a very non-Japanese. Well, he's not Japanese, he's Taiwanese. Uh, he, his real name is Gopek Hawk and he was, uh, born in Japanese Taiwan. So that's kind of where the link comes from. This was Taiwan while it was occupied by the Japanese. Anyway, he's, he, long story short, he only died, uh, he only died about 10 years ago, aged 96. Uh, he invented instant noodles by figuring out that if you flash fry them right after the the fresh noodles have been cooked. They can be preserved almost indefinitely without without losing their, um, you know, awesomeness. Yeah, I have I researched this a lot and watched a lot of science and researched a lot of the science behind this because people flippantly just say, oh, yeah, in 1958, he was working on this thing to figure out, like, you know, in the post-war food shortage, a way to, like, make noodles stable, blah, 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 blah. And he, it's like your typical, like, uh, macaroni was invented by Thomas Jefferson bullshit, where it's like, oh, he was watching his wife with the tempura oil and figured out that's how he could flash fry it. It was like, no, it was way more in-depth than that. He realized that he would boil the noodles first in an alkaline solution that would then preserve them to be able to be receptive to the flash frying in palm oil. Not tempura oil. He may have got the idea from the tempura oil, but it was palm oil. And that is so high in saturated fats that it is unbelievably shelf-stable. That and Twinkies are what's going to get us through the nuclear apocalypse that's happening in 2019. But here's the thing. Okay, yes, he died of heart failure, but he was 96. Did he really? He died of heart failure when he was 96, and he said he ate instant ramen every day until he died. Look, if you, <laughs> I'm not going to get into this poly unsaturated versus saturated fat argument, but we all know that like your palm oils are incredibly bad for the environment, so don't use them, but there are other alternatives. But, but actually, it, it goes back to that whole thing about the uh, post-war Japan because they were bringing in all of this uh, this wheat and the Japanese Ministry of Health were trying to tell people to eat bread and made from wheat flour, which was supplied, as we talked about, from the, U- from the U.S. And Momofuku Andu was like, well, hold on. Why are we – bread is not part of our diet, but noodles are. And they're way more familiar and we don't have to go through this education process. Mm-hmm. But he said, "We should be we should be eating noodles. We should be we should be doing this." And I think that uh, we we can do this. And that's where the the need to come up with this, you know, shelf stable, as you say, long shelf life, easy to prepare, easy to consume, but familiar dish. Mm-hmm. There was this need at a at a at a national societal level, and he 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 took it. Kind of reminds me in a very odd way of, um, and this is going to sound so weird, uh, Mussolini. He encouraged the people of Italy 
during the war, during the, the wheat shortages to plant rice because it was easier for them to harvest and like trying to get the entire country to shift to something is very, very difficult. And so trying to get the Japanese to shift to a bread-based diet when you could just have made the noodles was such a boneheaded move on whoever was trying to figure that out. And Mamafuku Andu just figured this out that, yeah, to your point, let's let's just move this into a more familiar, more familiar setting. And he went on to be you know, uh, part of the Nissan food group, uh, which yeah, he to founded, day, he founded exactly. Nissan, uh, and, in, which is based in Osaka. There's even an, an, an instant noodles museum there that you can go into, you can go and check it out. And then of course, in 1971, he invented cup noodles. Yeah. Which in England, uh, the variation is pot noodle, but you know, and I, we talked about this, I'm not sure if it was during the layovers episode or another episode, um, where Cathay would do pot noodles on the plane, but it was it was the Nissan um, Foods classic white container with the writing on so it. So let let's let's be very clear about this. It, cup noodles is a is a trademark of Nissan. You can yeah. only cup noodles are only made by Nissan. They're very good and they are available as on Cathay flights, but they're also available on British Airways, on on Jal, on basically anybody that flies. To and from, uh, well, Asia really, uh, because like, for for the same reasons, they're they're flavorful, they're easy to store, they're easy to prepare. My kids eat them like they're going out of fashion on the flight. Pot noodles are a disgusting bastardization that have never that have no relationship to. They're the they're the the sibling that you keep in the closet that you don't talk yes. about. They are yes. wrong. As I joked in a as I joked in a previous episode, the container is more flavorful and nutritious than the actual contents. Yeah, I, well, exactly, and I think that that's 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 very true. Uh, he, he he invented them as well because he'd watched Americans in um, in Japan, um, servicemen. They'd take the um, the brick of instant noodles that he'd created, and they they would break them in half and they'd put them in a cup, and then they'd pour hot water over the, with over them. Uh, as opposed to adding them to a dish or anything like that, as as the Japanese would do, and then they would eat them with a fork. And he was like, "Wow, this is freaking! This is a great idea." So he's like, "Okay, let's get a styrofoam cup uh, with a kind of tapered shape, narrower at the bottom than at the top, uh, and then that would keep them warm. And then you can just open the lid, pour in the water, add a packet of flavoring, and bam, you're done." And so that that's what took Nissan from actually a tiny little salt company they started as to what they are now, which is just a huge, huge, gigantic, 374 billion yen company. Out of desperation comes invention. But like, it, I, this is getting onto my last point here about, about instant noodles and, and, and Mama Fuku Ando and, and just this whole section. Get off your hipster high horse about what is traditional ramen, what is traditional, you know, pot, you know, cup noodle, whatever you want to call this, and the variations. Like I have people who are going to ramen places that are trying to do something interesting and fun, and people are like, you know, oh well, this is not traditional. How dare they? Like you know, take someone else's culture and try and do this, 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 this. Only if like five, ten years ago, I think it was five years ago, the Japanese public were asked what is the best uh, technological innovation of the last hundred years that Japan has come out with. 57%. And this is crazy. Not not only were they not given a list, they were just told to write in what they thought. 57% of people polled said that they should be most proud 
of instant noodles. And so that whole idea comes from the post-war needing to do what you needed to do, get by the cup noodles, watching the, the GIs, how they were doing it. There is no through line of history or, or authenticity, but the Japanese are so proud of this that almost two-thirds of the poll people said, this is our greatest achievement, beating out the Walkman, the karaoke, the LED light, anything Japanese over the last hundred years that we, you know, the fancy toilets. Like, it's instant noodle, which is such a great way to be like, just eat the goddamn thing. It's yeah. tasty. I, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I think, I mean, I highlighted, or not highlighted, I skimmed over this point, actually, that, you know, you ask people in Japan, and it's, it's not like pizza, it's not like chili, it's not like all of these pissing content or barbecue. It's, yes, they have their own version, and it's great. And then this this version, also great, but very, very different. And that's that's fine, and that's beautiful, and that's wonderful. And I think ramen is is one of my favorite dishes. Like I I I hate the chain Wagamama here in the UK. I despise it. I think it's terrible because it's it's weaponized bad ramen or just too easy ramen. Um, but at least it's introduced people to ramen. And when they walk past it, I mean, hopefully, maybe I'm being a little bit too optimistic here that people will go, <laughs> ooh, that looks like the thing I had at Wagamama. I'll try it. As opposed to, I'm not going to go there because it's not Wagamama, which is probably no, what I, people no, will I, do. I don't, I don't know. I agree that it opens their eyes because ramen is so intimidating. I wouldn't, 10 years ago, I wouldn't just be like, oh, I'm going to try this, this, this uh, ramen soup without having a point of reference, be it a poor point of reference, uh, but something that I can be like, oh, I've had a sanitary version, a sanitized version of this. Yeah, um, yeah so- no, I, I, I think that that's true. And I, I know I, it's one of my favorite, I don't know, is it, a, is it a group of food? Is it a category of food? I don't know. Is it a dish with a lot of different regional varietals? I don't know. I don't know how one would describe it, but I love it. I think it's wonderful. Like I've said, I've never had a bad bowl of ramen anywhere in japan be it in a in a village in a town in tokyo i absolutely love it there's one thing that i think that is worth mentioning about how to eat it because it can be intimidating as well because you there's this sort of well the japanese are very etiquette based and i don't want to offend anybody a you're, you're not unless you you know play drums with your chopsticks or you're just you're just a dick using it to um, stab somebody yeah it's in, it's encouraged and almost necessary to slurp the noodles when you take them from from the soup because their slurping cools them down as they go into your mouth. So don't be afraid of that. And it's fine to lift the bowl up and in some cases to to drink the broth at the very end. So don't don't worry about that. And also, no one is going to like throw you in prison for it. You're a foreigner and you look like a foreigner. So it's as long as you're trying to to be, you know, reasonably dignified no one is going to uh to you're not going to ruin anybody else's meal mm-hmm. i also i was thinking about this every single episode that we've done every single topic ingredient we've encouraged people to try and make it at home there's always a variation that you can do at home but i don't think this falls under that category no i no. i in fact i have in in caps in our document that we go through in, in the show do not try to make it at home because you will never be able to get anywhere near the level of flavors uh, and and complexity and ingredients that you will get around the corner 
at the quiet little ramen joint because they've been cooking the, you know, their broth for two days and you don't have time mm-hmm. to do that. They have access to ingredients and skill and technique that they've been working on for maybe even generations. You don't. So while you can, I, I mean, I make my kids a quote unquote ramen at home, which is basically a soy sauce, chicken broth and udon noodles because they just like those type of noodles with a soft boiled egg in it. And um, if I have any leftover, um, you know, ch- chick- grilled chicken thigh or um, roast pork or anything, I'll put that in there. Is it ramen? Yeah, I guess technically it is. Am I going to be like, oh yeah, I need ramen. Am I going to make that? Hell no. I'm going to go to a ramen joint and, and, and order ramen. I feel like ramen is one of those things that you um, um, have taste buds will travel kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you say, I was intimidated at first. The great thing is any city around the world, no matter where you are in the world, if you're over 100,000 people, I'm pretty much going to guarantee you that you'll have a serviceable ramen joint. Whether it's from a Japanese person that's emigrated or from a a ramen enthusiast who has studied the art to the nth and is now um, serving it up to the good people of Stockholm. Yeah, that was something just twigged in my mind, which was um, given the fact that there's such a massive Brazilian Japanese population. In fact, I think it's the largest population outside of Japan. Sao Paulo being one of the largest. I would love to know what a Sao Paulo ramen would be like. Like, what are they doing that's different? I think the South America in general is just an area of ignorance for me as far as uh, my culinary um, knowledge. And it's kind of depressing. I have a friend who is Brazilian who I talk to constantly. Um, and I should have asked him before coming on. But um I don't know that, that if there is a very like we've just established there's variations within Tokyo within Japan sorry of of ramens but the fact is the difference of ingredients that you can get around the world what are some of the, those next steps what is the I don't know that and someone got really pissy at, uh, when I was talking about this other day the ramen burger which I understand is not ramen but like it's where they use ramen as the bun uh, what are people in in South America doing with ramen? What are people in Northern Europe doing? Scandinavia, I'd be very interested to see if they use some of their seafood in uh, in the broth as opposed to more traditional Chinese, Japanese style. So if you've had any or something very closely resembling it, let us know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love, I'd also, and I appreciate that we've, we've, we've not rushed through, but we've not obviously had the opportunity to go very, very deep into this episode or to this topic in this episode. So if you have a favorite style of ramen or you've got a particular ramen joint, either in Japan or outside of Japan, let us know if you've got any ramen tips. Brian, if you're listening, I know you watch Atashi, if you listen to the show and we've obviously, I'm very sure we've messed something up or missed something, <laughs> please do let us know. Uh, uh, you know, this is, again, I'm so passionate about this food. I, I don't pretend to know much about it at all. I just, I, I really love it. I know a lot of you that, uh, that listen do. So please get in touch. Let us know what you like about ramen. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. I want to buy one of those, those strainer things that they have, you know, the things that they put the noodles in and the water and then yeah. just pull it up and then do some sort of like crazy art with it and it's just like all part of this rhythmic ballet so yes might, might yes. have to look into one of those <laughs> yeah no they're they're cool um one of my favorite ramen joints in tokyo if you are going anytime soon 
is Thunderbird Ramen in Tokyo. Uh, it's near um, Nihonbashi, if you're familiar with Tokyo. I I like it there. It's cozy. It's on a quiet little street in a very, very busy city. They do a great spicy... I don't even know what it is, frankly. I just pressed the top left and I got it, and it was wonderful. <laughs> so <laughs> do, uh, do, do let us know. Um, wow. So here we are. We may be able to squeeze another episode in before the end of the year we'll see how it goes you're traveling i'm I'm traveling but we'll see how it goes uh if you if we don't we'll definitely get this episode out before before christmas so if you celebrate have a wonderful time if you don't carry on enjoy (laughs) whatever day enjoy enjoy whatever it is uh in the quiet email levels uh but until then be well be well